Jason Lube. This is episode 70 of the Ultra Culture Podcast. Did you know that it is very possible that meditation could actually lengthen your lifespan? At least that's according to the study I'm looking at right now. Uh, I, for one, would really enjoy having the last year and a half of my life back. Uh, I'm sure you're probably on the same page with me there. <laughs> that would be really nice. Um, there's been some time shaved off. So, I'm looking at the study right now. It's called Meditation and Telomere Length, a meta-analysis. And lo and behold, it turns out meditation could very likely lengthen your telomeres. They are the caps at the ends of your chromosomes. And when your telomeres are short, it is an indicator of a decreased lifespan or just a short lifespan. And when they are long, it is an indicator potentially of, a, of more longevity. Now, I am not a scientist, so don't Reddit me, bro, but I'm just going to read you this study, which is quite interesting. So here's the abstract. This is quite brief. Objective. Telomeres are the caps at the end of chromosomes. Short telomeres are a biomarker for worsening health and early death. The present study consolidated research on meditation and telomere length through a meta-analysis of results of studies examining the effect of meditation on telomere length through a meta-analysis of results of studies examining the effect of meditation on telomere length by comparing the telomere length of meditating participants with participants in control conditions. A search of the literature identified 11 studies reporting 12 comparisons of meditating individuals with individuals in control conditions. An overall significant weighted effect size of G equals 0.40 indicated that the individuals in meditation conditions had longer telomeres. When an outlier effect size was trimmed from the analysis, the effect size was smaller, G equals 0.16. Across studies, a greater number of hours of meditation among participants in meditation conditions was associated with larger effect sizes. Conclusion. These findings provide tentative support for the hypothesis that participants in meditation conditions have longer telomeres than participants in comparison conditions, and that a greater number of hours of meditation is associated with a greater impact on telomere biology. The results of the meta-analysis have potential clinical significance in that they suggest that meditation-based interventions may prevent telomere attrition or increase telomere length. So how's that for encouraging? So the name of the study is Meditation and Telomere Length, a meta-analysis. You can find it at pubmed.gov. In fact, if you just put meditation into pubmed.gov, you will get an ev a never-ending, cascading waterfall of a real scientific study of the benefits of meditation. Why am I looking at this? Um, the reason is that, like you, I've got the hell beat out of me over the last year and a half. Uh, it's been real rough. I'm not going to bore you with my sob story because you probably got one of your own. And the last thing you need to hear is somebody else's troubles. Uh, I'm not here for that. I'm here to give you solutions. And what do you know? A lot of the stuff that I'm really good at and that I teach is really good for that stuff. 
like meditation and ritual, which gives you a sense of total control over your life, which, by the way, isn't that the thing that everyone's missing right now, a sense of control and agency and power? Turns out I know a few things that are pretty good at doing that. Magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E is where I teach all of these techniques from meditation to divination to even wacky stuff like astral projection and, and, and things like that, which uh, actually, you know what, all of these things can seem really out there, but they interlock into this beautiful, um, you know, this beautiful tapestry of techniques that all support each other and form this, the world's greatest toolkit for mastering your reality, for mastering your life, for feeling like you're at the center of your experience, rather than what we so often feel when life feels out of control, where you start to feel like a pinball that's just being, you know, slammed off the walls of eternity uh, with no control, and it's just one hard knock after the next. That's what life tends to feel like when the spark's gone out, when you don't feel like you have a sense of empowerment, when you don't feel like you have a sense of meaning when you're just vegging out by the TV and you're kind of given up. And the real tragedy of the modern world is that not that we're being controlled by Bill Gates or whatever, you know, some external force, but that so many people give up before they've even begin, even begun, even when they're really young. The vast void of meaningless, meaninglessness and despair. You know, the nothing from the never-ending story that is the never-ending affliction of the modern person. Um, magic is the opposite of that. It's the, it's the turning, the, the sparking of, of divine intelligence that becomes a bonfire that consumes your life in a positive way, a, a bonfire of, of passion and meaning and, and intensity and intention. And, and it turns every waking moment into a glittering infinite jewel of um, a, a profound gift from the universe. And sometimes we forget that and that's when life gets a little rocky. But when you get back in the groove, particularly through the practices, meditation and ritual, the waters flow clear again and everything can become um, certainly not pain-free because nothing is in life, but meaningful and charged with power just like a lightning bolt hit you. Awesome. And I will say that through for all the hard stuff I've gone through in my life, magic has always been there for me. When my back's to the wall, when I feel like there's no obvious way out, magic's always there for me. And magic allows you to go from point A to point B, often in the fastest way possible, in a way that banging your head against the wall for years, using your logical brain to try and figure something out, never will, where magic can just cross that gap for you. Uh, the reason that is, is because it uses your unconscious so at magic.me, I teach all of this stuff because I am passionate about all this stuff, as hopefully you can tell, because I don't know why everybody is not into it. It is, you know, to discover that there is not just a philosophy, because it's not really a philosophy, but just a set of techniques and practices that anybody can do. You don't need a guru. It's helpful to have someone to show you how to do it, but that's all that magic.me is. It, you know, you don't need to be in a religion. You don't need to believe something. You just need to do some techniques and things will happen. My goal with magic.me is simply to empower people flat out. You know, that's it. And I do that with magic. I do that with, you know, practical information. I will do that with any tool that I can get my hands on. And by God, I've got my hands on quite a lot in the, the time that I've been doing this, which is quite a while now. I will use any tool that I can to empower people and give them a sense of total mastery 
over their life, not anyone else's life, their life. That's what I'm here to do. And that's what magic.me is for. So I greatly hope to see you in class and maybe even to work with you one-on-one in a feature that we have called Office Hours, which I mention a lot on this podcast. It's basically like a a free-for-all where, uh, you know, there's a real great core group of students and there's new students every time uh, who show up. And it's it's kind of an Ask Me Anything format, but it's really more of a group experience where... Um, you know, people are asking questions about life, the universe and everything and their own magical practice and results that they're getting. And am I doing this right? And then, you know, I'll do everything from kind of give people little, little micro adjustments, just like a yoga teacher would, uh, to, you know, working with people in depth on clearing a blockage in their life. There've been some really, really profound sessions like that. And it's, it's always, it's anyone's guess what's going to happen. Uh, we do them twice a month. Uh, so it's every other Saturday. You can find out more about that on the Office Hours section of magic.me. This podcast is an excerpt from Office Hours. And this this was just an awesome conversation that I had with a super cool student about the issue of karma and burning karma, which really is kind of the core question of all spirituality. And this went into some surprisingly deep and profound places. Uh, the student very graciously gave me permission to release this on the podcast. And I think you're really going to uh, be surprised by it and enjoy it. Um, but you know, like often office hours can go for hours. I mean, you know, this is just one conversation of many that we're doing in these sessions. And, you know, wow, we go, we go all over the known universe, shall we say. So, um, but you don't need to do office hours. You can just show up and, and take the basic courses. And you may be saying like, that sounds awesome, but I don't have any time because, uh, the world is ending and holy, just, there's a billion things coming at me. I totally understand. I'm in the same position. Um, that is why, look, this is, this is the modern world. Okay. Like the reason I teach on an app is so that I can make it in little units. You can take five units at a time, or excuse me, five minute units at a time, one a day. You can take it on bathroom breaks. You can take it when you're, you know, off work at the end of the day or before work, you know, you can decide your own level of commitment. And although it is true that the sooner you start magic, the faster you're going to start seeing results and massive improvements in your life. There's no race to like learn everything and master everything far from it. I mean, we're talking about eternal techniques and eternal bliss here. So you want to jump into the stream as fast as possible, but there's no race to learn everything. In fact, it's a lot better to go slow. Uh, It absolutely is and master one thing at a time. So you can determine your own speed there. And so I have students from some of the most high stress professions you could imagine, and they work it into their schedules and, and find tremendous benefit from it because even setting ritual aside for a second, which is tremendous in its own right, meditation is the one life skill that improves all other life skills. Because think about it, it's improving the quality of your thinking and the structure of your brain, meaning it will improve everything from your focus on your work, your your creative and lateral thinking, your presence and leadership ability, Uh, your level of intimacy and connection in your relationship. So it sounds too good to be true to say like, wow, there's this one miracle uh, drug that like makes everything in life better. But we're talking about meditation here. It does, right? Because it's like going to the gym, you know, you're going, working out and exercise improves literally every single thing in your body. Why would meditation be any different for the mind? It's not, right? It's the same type of thing. So... The faster you do it and the more the b- more you commit to it and the better you get at it, 
the better everything becomes. It's just your, otherwise that's when you get that feeling of being out of control, it's because your mind is not controlled. It's that simple, right? Now the practice is a long and, and a, a long practice, which requires commitment, but the practice is simple and the reality of it is simple and hopefully quite straightforward. So time's not an issue with this. The monetary investment is low. It's like, you know, Netflix and some coffee, you know, it's at the, at the, the lowest tier of magic.me, which is already a phenomenal amount of material. It's a very low monthly fee. And of course, because I am passionate about this and I truly believe in it. And I've had so many overwhelming success stories from students, which you can read on the site. You don't need to take it from me. You can go check those reviews out yourself. Um, there's a hundred percent money back guarantee on it. If you take it and you decide you don't like it, it's not for you within the you know, within the time limits we have on the site and all that, which are very generous. If you decide it's not for you, that's 100% cool. And I will give you 100% of your money back. Zero risk. And I'm completely fine with that. So not a problem. Uh, super easy to sign up uh, and jump in and get started. You can go to magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. And everything is there for you. Laid out step by step, whether you want to jump in at the standard level, or you want to say, I want my results faster and jump in at the foreign at some of the mega course level, adapt initiative, which is our number one biggest, you know, blow your head wide open training. And, and, you know, you know, turn your life, make your life go from zero to 60 overnight. Uh, you think I'm exaggerating. Um, you can jump in at that level too. But there's anything right? Any level you want to get into. Or if you just want to sample some of the free resources, you can do that too. Just make sure you sign up for our uh, mailing list. You'll get a free meditation. If you're not on the list already, that's free.magic.me slash offer. And then you can get free stuff. I mean, there's an introduction to meditation. There's blog posts, there's video content, there's our best of podcast, things like that. So if you just want to learn more and sample it, check out magic.me too and see what you think you can do that too. And that's perfectly fine. I'm really looking forward to seeing you in class. I hope to work with you one-on-one -on -one in office hours. And in the meantime, here's a sample of the type of stuff that we do there. Um, this is a great, great episode, uh, if you will. And uh, really, I hope you really, really enjoy it. I think you will. All right. Lots of love. Hang in there. And here's the episode. First, I want to thank you for making the ADEPT initiative for all your courses. And I'm not new to spiritual path. It's been 20 years for me as well of crazy, intense stuff. Um, so I feel like I, you know, I see sort of a brother who's had a very different path, I'm sure. But well, good to meet um, you, brother. <laughs> just the, the validation of someone else walking this wild thing is um, it's actually quite a lot just to, to see to see someone else. Thank you. The spiritual, the, you know, the Buddhists make this point, you know, the Sangha, the, the spiritual path, we, we truly are all related in a sense. It's like the, the, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. And the Sangha doesn't necessarily mean it's Buddhism. It means people who are truly on the spiritual path. We all know each other. We've all met each other at different times. We're all connected. Or as uh, Meister Eckhart said, I think Meister Eckhart, uh, you know, the mystics all speak the same language and come from the same place, no matter what culture or background. And I love that. I really do. It's, man, in such an uncertain world, it's, it's just, it's awesome. So, sorry, go ahead. No, that's right. It, feel, it feels like a universal language. It feels like you see someone who you've, 
it feels as if you've known them before. You probably have, but uh, it's like remembering who you are in the context of community. And it's like uh, when you kind of wander around alone in the desert for a while to reconnect to the brothers and sisters is like coming back home. Yeah. Yeah. And we're all ultimately alone, right? But we come together and, and compare notes. And um, my current role is simply to provide a place for that. I mean, you know, it's not the, the, the quote unquote teacher role is simply, hey, I'm, I, uh, I put a tent up. <laughs> You know, like, it's, it's not like, you know, I, at least that's the way I teach and that's how it should be. It's, there's no hierarchy. It's just like, Hey, you know, because how can you assume a hierarchy in the face of life, which is, as we all know, so unbelievably complex and challenging. And I, myself, like I'm going to, and thank you for saying that about the courses, you know, more will be coming. I might, you know, I'm going through very challenging life circumstances at the moment and big changes that are unexpected and all that. But, but, um, there's lots more coming. I mean, I have, Sound studio, a video studio on that side. So uh, lots more will be coming soon. But sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, okay, I look forward to them. Because, you know, kind of I've thought about how I might ask this question from different angles without having to spend a 10-minute preamble. And really, what I'm trying to do is, it's like I took a break from intense seeking because of life insanity that I needed to sort out, which I'm sure was directly relevant, you know, related to what I was practicing to begin with. Magic in the Western tradition has been the, the part of things that I have not studied very much other than some early glimpses. My path was Vipassana, sort of a Christian devotional thing after a while. I believe a pretty genuine Ayurveda teacher for a period. Kind of hard to, hardcore, just live at home and meditate or go to monasteries. And then I'd have periods of I need a job and use whatever level of new thought or something I, yeah. I do. To try That's to quite a resume, it. yeah. It has been. And I think the two things I'm trying to do right now, you might can help me with, and maybe magic specifically helps with this in, in terms of the tradition, or maybe just you personally have your insight. And, and the two things, one is I want a tradition to help guide me forward. But the second one is I'm still kind of repairing myself from some really wild shit that happened, you know, about eight years ago, it was highly traumatic. And with, um, with spiritual things or just life? Oh, at first I made some dumb decisions and had some painful results. I've messed my body up. I lost my job and my insurance and had to live with some sketchy people and recover from that. I ended up where I am now in Thailand. You know, I had a Silicon Valley engineer job. Now I'm in Thailand, kind of survival mode. Was this this drugs, if you don't mind me asking? or. No, not yet. Okay. <laughs> not well, yet. Don't say yet. I mean, hey, you're in Thailand. Watch yeah. out, man. <laughs> don't go down that path. Yeah. Well, yeah. Not yet in the story. Um, oh, oh, I see. Okay. Uh, okay. All right. Yeah. So I was recovering from the loss of my income, health issues, etc. When I, I noticed this process occurring, and this is kind of what I want you to help me de- de- debug here. For the next couple of years, as I would regain some physical strength, some sort of income, some sort of security, something, I would immediately be faced with like my worst fear. I got kidnapped at gunpoint. Wow. And as soon as that was sort of handled, I got freakishly poisoned in an airport. This was in Thailand? That was Vietnam. Oh, wow. Emergency flew back to Thailand, sorted that out. Doctor told me I was going to die. I convinced him that I wouldn't. And then I didn't. So, you know, Wikipedia to the rescue. Um, Recovered from this. Uh, excited. I moved to somewhere to kind of shake it off, broke my foot 
<laughs> recovered from that. Uh, while my foot was healing, I'm sitting using the computer in an open space I thought was safe. Someone comes, I think is friendly, turns to agenda. I believe he's probably a sociopath. I feared for my life. I had to choose how to handle the situation under what circumstances I would kill someone. Really intense moral dilemmas. Fortunately, didn't have to play out that way. But um, you know, I've told this story to several people, and usually they kind of space out because it's sort of you know it's quite intense, and people usually don't have a reference unless yeah. they're into war. It's pretty and far outside of people's reference points. Oddly, <laughs> fortunately, I mean probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, you know, at some point I was like, okay, this is uncanny, especially this chemical poisoning thing and just the sequence there might be so so there might be something going on and in vipassana tradition they have this structure of you practice you go you kind of boot up into a powerful experience you might be familiar with the structure you have a breakthrough and then you're in the dark night to be honest but that's true Um, of all traditions but yeah yeah and the way they detail the experience i mean it's kind of for a monk it's your sensations are altered in this fashion your you know the things you observe change etc but they don't go into anything about how it would play out in the world somewhere along the way i found the teachings of alan chapman and duncan barfour those yeah. dudes yeah who knew my vipassana teacher daniel ingram who you mentioned last time oh yeah 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 okay so you studied under him I did before he went public, actually. It's probably one of and his first teachers. Did you feel that he was a legit teacher? I'm just curious. I did, okay. Yeah, I, I had a lot of doubt at times, and I straight from that. But when I came back to it, uh, at, at this point, I have a lot of confidence in his accuracy of him, his self-attainment and the way he teaches. But it's been okay. a while since I've Okay, just curious. Uh, yeah. Is he still teaching? Uh, he's always been an aloof guy where he gives the book away and... It, sends people to the website, but yeah. I've heard a podcast last year where he mentions that he's still answering tons of re- What happened to Alan Chapman, by the way? Is he still... No, I never met that dude. He just disappears yeah. like periodically for a long period, you know? And I, That's what I see. And so I think, um, I think Daniel was asked this and said that he's still teaching. He just... One guy went offline because he had a normie job and needed to be more careful about okay. something. Um, but so, so they mentioned their integration of Apasana with a magical path and how you might be better off just meditating through the dark night because if you're off in the world, there's a tendency to have more bleed through. And when I read that, I was like, I think that's what's happening. I feel like I'm having the opposite of synchronicities. Like I'm manifesting my darkest fears out in the world while I'm navigating this dark period of another path, you know, path in the Apasana language. And I don't know if that's true, but... I'm wondering what your take is on it. Well, let's see. How do I answer this? I think there's two. I spent my last life in Cambodia doing very, very, very bad things. So there is some very much, uh, there, there's there's a couple of things that work here, especially with that part of the world. Some of my other students are there too. Um, Spencer, um, who I haven't seen in a while. I hope he's okay. But there's obviously so much. I'm guessing you're American. Yes. Okay. So there's there's obviously some karma there, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, in addition to individual karma, there's also extremely heavy group karma uh, between Americans and Vietnam and just Southeast Asia in general, and uh, to say the very least. And um, that is karma that America is still suffering, whether it realizes it or not. I mean, mo- most of most of what the you know most of the collapse 
of, of America, it can, it, the collapse of America is a direct result of the negative actions we took in Southeast Asia and then was accelerated, obviously, by the um, what we did in Afghanistan and Iraq. So, you know, and one of the things that one of the great arrogances of, of the American empire is, is just thinking that, that you can go onward Christian soldiers. The British were better at it, to be honest, because they actually believed in their religious mission to some extent, to some extent, but the Americans don't. And that is uh, that crisis of, you know, it's like, you don't forget. I mean, you know, can't, you know, that was the era of monks lighting themselves on fire and things like that. And we were fighting against them, which is ridiculous. And, and um, anyways, that aside, I mean, I, I myself bear that, <laughs> I won't tell you exactly what I was doing over there, but it was bad. It's about as bad as it gets. You think I'm nice and fuzzy, but well, this lifetime's been a little different. So, yeah, I got this feeling as well that not only did I have my own personal stuff going on, but that I stumbled into something. Absolutely. I mean, plane to go to to Asia, I was like, "What? Why am I going to Thailand? I don't quite know why. I just had to leave where I got where I was. Got a chunk of cash." I'd always thought I would sort of become a digital nomad or retiree there in the future when things were put together. Things weren't put together. So I thought, well, I'll just live safe little cheap life somewhere. And then a year later, I'm <laughs> staggering around Vietnam with all this craziness. Right. And, and very often in general, particularly for spiritual practitioners, if you find yourself doing something and you don't know why, and you can, it's, like, it's like blocked from you often, not always, but often the reason is, is karma. Uh, which is a nice way of saying you're getting caught up in something bigger than you. And uh, it's important if you want to stay free, it's important in those situations to understand that even that is volitional. You don't need to go into it if you don't want to, but in order to do that, you need to become very, very, very conscious of what's going on. And that requires a lot of sitting down and thinking and um, seeing what's going on and and self-interrogation. But Kind of skill set that I think I'm trying to develop is to get a little more skill set with the content of analyzing the chunks of my subconscious that are revealing themselves, you know, little threads that lead to something more clear, etc. Yeah, because, you know, I had a period which was not Vipassana, but my core start of a decade ish was very much don't go into details of things, notice the sensation, be equanimous and observe. So that's still my kind of default tendency is not not to try to entertain too much processing. Right. But that itself is a technique for burning karma, right? If you, and, and the reason is this, uh, if you take the, uh, it's not the only one, but it is one. If you take the, the pasana attitude of the non-attachment, non-aversion towards events as they arise, you are allowing them to process without generating further attachment, right? So you're not digging it deeper because the whole point Obviously, and and you don't need me to say this, but just for the benefit of other people on the call, the point of Vipassana is non-reactivity, uh, which is the name of the game, in, in my opinion, in so many ways. Um, but the point of Vipassana is, uh, or Buddhism in general, is like the, that we've built up these these tendencies, these grooves by, by engaging in the same thought patterns and activities, uh, not just for one life, but potentially for many, many, many lifetimes, or at least experientially, it feels like that. And therefore, those grooves are cut deep. And the, that the inertia, it's just like the law of physics, you know, that which is in motion will stay in motion and, and vice versa. And so it takes, you know, you, you have to first realize that you're in a car speeding towards a wall. 
but then you have to decelerate. You can't just cut it and just jump out of the car. It just doesn't work that way. So the point is to ease off the gas and non-react so that you can slowly decelerate and then you can get off. But it can't just be, you know, you don't just like recognize something's going on and then it stops. It needs to be. Um, and so for that reason, the, the non, in your case, non-reactivity to events as they arise is in itself a method for um, easing the burden of karma as it ripens because karma will ripen, right? It's going to happen. It's just, you know, all energy is conserved in the universe. But when it does ripen, the idea is by not reacting to it, you don't get further caught in the quicksand. And when you suffer the effects of the ripening karma by bringing awareness to the situation um, and non-reactivity and just being aware and allowing it and non-resisting, you're not making it worse than it is. And it actually, in fact, you're allowing it to process instead of digging it deeper or pushing it away or pushing it off to someone else, which will only make it worse. Right? And, and of course, the opposite goes as well for when positive karmas ripen, because then, of course, as you know, if you cling to them and make them try to stay, they will go and you will suffer more. So it's, it's simply the non-reactivity allows you to disentangle yourself from the uh, events of day-to-day -day existence so that you can stay even keeled um, and, and more liberated and more free. So, so in that sense, I got a little bit off track. Not really. I just forgot what our entry point on that was. But in, in that case, the practice you're already doing already is um, allow, you know, lessening, not lessening, but it is, is facilitating the burning of karma. Interesting. You take it there because the, I guess the practice that has been my core practice since the blowout that I didn't detail the particulars of before coming to Asia was, are you familiar with this uh, teacher who's now passed Robert Adams, an American Advaita guy who's mm -hmm. with Brahmin and Maharshi and uh, probably passed in like around 2000. Okay. His, listen to his audio online and you feel that he's, he's somewhere deep and his, his he always brings it back to a, to a deep, instruction no matter what people have going on um but his core message is just don't react um in vipassana is kind of designed to be on the cushion but but robert's instructions are whatever's going on you know in your job in your day this is your primary training is to have a mental posture of complete non-reactivity well you need to, to do both right Green. And, the, and yeah. the mat practice trains that muscle. I mean, I say that in out of mission too. I mean, L. Ron Hubbard said the same thing and he was right. <laughs> it's like... Yeah. So I think I, that was, I mean, I was laying in bed with this health issue for two years, listening to his stuff kind of programming myself oh. that way with that posture. And then here I was running around the world in a very PTSD mentality. I mean, very emotionally and physiologically disordered, really, you know, one trauma after another. So trying to have a non-reactive posture was sort of the, the ultimate test. But I, when I would have a gun in my face or, you know, extreme moments, that was when like my survival gear would click in and say the most powerful thing to do right now is to have a non-reactive vibe and somehow that'll just help this thing move along. And it, and it was true. It, I believe it saved my life. Wow. But so where that kind of takes me is he was so hardcore about not reacting. I mean, he even would be clear. Look, if you think you have a problem in your life, don't fix it. Just don't react. If you think you prefer a different life, don't do it. Just don't react. Like, you wake up and snap out of it. So, you know, after a few years like this, I was quite like depressed and inert and um, met his primary student who became my teacher. 
we said a lot of these guys, students killed themselves because they were so depressed. Wow. From, you know, either miss, or maybe a couple, but a lot were, were deep, deeply, you know. Okay. Well, so there's, your, like, there's your Yelp review, right? I mean, it's like one thing one of my teachers pointed out to me is like, if you want to gauge, if you really want to gauge the quality of a spiritual practice, the only way to do it is to look at the lives of the people who've been doing it long term and ask yourself if you want that life. That's right. Yeah. So when I heard his view, I was like, I'm glad I got his perspective. Oh. Um, I'll just, but I'll study with this guy who's got multiple perspectives. But over time, I, I became disenchanted with him. I saw sort of some issues with him. So that's where it kind of leads me a little bit teacherless and core practiceless, and also conflicted. I've got the Vipassana on the cushion teaching. I've got the Robert Adams, you know, at all times, non-reactivity, but with the downside. And then I've got magic, which seems to have a lot more emphasis on constructing your life to be a stable life and, you know, repairing your PTSD and becoming a properly functioning human. At least how I that. teach it. <laughs> it's not always. And let's be family. And a lot of a lot of people who follow magic do not end up with awesome lives. Okay. Which I is why that. I've made such heavy modifications. And I'm not only teaching magic. I call it magic because it's like cooler. But uh, yeah. I, I mean, I teach all these other, I mix everything together, you know, and I largely teach what's worked for me following a similar path as you like learning from all these places, having many disillusioning experiences and also falling, falling back on finding out, like you're saying, it's like in those moments where it's like where you have a gun in your face, you know, and I haven't had that experience, but I've been punched in the face and I've, you know, I've experienced violence. It's when it's in extreme moments, like what you fall back on. That's when you find out what's real, right? Or when you're a rock bottom, it's like what you do that gets you out of that. That's when you find out what's real. It's when you stress test it. You can't stress test it in a comfy temple, temple, or in a magical group where everyone's patting each other on the back, saying like, "Oh yeah, your ring is so awesome." You know, like fuck that. You won't learn anything like that. The only way that you learn is by doing what you're doing. I think, which is stress testing it in, as Brian Geisen put it, the chapel of extreme experience. You know, and, and I resonate with that so much. What you're saying, it's like, I often think like, you know, I was went to India so many times. It's like, I often think it's like, I often feel like, man, yeah, I should just be like backpacking in Southeast Asia or something like that. You know, it's like, so, um, but uh, you know, life's pretty extreme right now as it is. Is that all near death? It does have some, some upsides. What's that? Southeast Asia does have some upsides. Sure. And uh, it's next on my list, actually. I've never been there. So I, I, I'm planning on going, hope, hopefully soon. Um, but they uh, open the doors with a two-week quarantine. Uh, so you just, do you get to choose where you quarantine? There's a list of official hotels. All right. Is it really easy to get COVID there? Uh, I believe I currently have it. Don't tell anybody. They don't make it easy to get tested. So I think it okay. went around without, people, without it officially being recognized you seem fine so it's been two months of a medium level of intensity wow that's uh, a long time yeah it's yeah really there's bad. that man everything's tricky okay well um at yeah. any rate i think that here's my technical point opinion which is okay well a couple one is like in general one way you can look at it it's not the absolute way to look at it but one way to look at it is Okay, so first of all, I want to point this out. It sounds like you're having fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you just like spicy, like me, you like spicy food. Right. right. Yeah. But the stuff you're describing sounds like my idea of a good time, to be quite honest. So better than office job. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, so, um, so I, I just want to point that out in the sense that 
um, I'm, I'm, you, you are obviously doing this because you want to. So that's important yeah. to realize and just remember your volitionality. Mm. So the second point is like that, that during the maelstrom, for sure, for several years, I was everything I tried to do to put the brakes on, but okay. it, everything felt very touch and go. Like I was barely in between, you know, but just holding on, but trying to not hold on just sort of right between the threshold. But clearly you put yourself in that experience on purpose. Otherwise you just would have stayed in, a, in an office job. Um, no, um, there, this, this event that led to all this was, I could discuss it, but I don't want to necessarily belabor this. Maybe it would be better to discuss on another call. But it was pretty, pretty wild of event that kind of started this chunk okay. of time. Well, let me point this out technically just as a general point, which is, okay, so technically, I'm going to put my doctor hat on for a second and get all scalpel-y, which I can do, um, which is, and, and which means precision of language. So, um, so first of all, uh, when it comes, so let's talk about two things, karma and approach to burning karma. Okay. So karma, what is karma? Karma is the continued in, uh, inertia of prior events. It's not, uh, it, it's in fact, doesn't even have a necessarily a moral connotation. It is simply, if you follow an action that it will continue into the future and does not actually go away. So, um, there's, and there's all kinds of karmas. There's individual karmas, there's group karmas, there's national karmas, there's, uh, planetary karmas, there's all kinds of things, right? And it's simply that a certain pattern is going forward. And that if something that has been uh, gone in one direction will rebalance in the other direction, right? So uh, the, the karma must be paid in the sense of not necessarily that debt is accrued, but in the sense that if you push to the left, it will swing to the right. Um, and for all actions, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Car the laws of karma are not any different from the laws of physics. They're really not. They're just simply, it's, a, it's applied to largely, you know, the sphere of human activity. So when it comes to karma, first of all, um, it is critical to, under, to, under, to differentiate between types of karma. One is your individual karma as a person uh, accrued in this lifetime and through prior lifetimes. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. Um, the second level of karma, and there's many, and I'm not going to get hit, get all of them because karma is not only uh, immensely complex, it's complex to a level that human beings are not capable of comprehending it. So I'm just giving you general models. The second level is your karmas, meaning your ties with other people in your life, right? So family, friends, uh, enemies, lovers, coworkers, everyone you've got karma with, but particularly with family and, and, uh, close friends, right? And that, that means you've repeated a pattern with them for probably many, many, many lifetimes. So there's very deep karma. That's not bad. It's just that that energy is repeating throughout time and will, will continue to repeat, right? Unless you deliberately take steps to end it, which can happen, but um, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily always need to happen, right? Uh, obviously, like extreme Buddhists, extreme Buddhist meditators, um, of which you are not, because you're not a monastic, um, at least currently, that doesn't mean you couldn't be. And it's not necessarily, but it doesn't necessarily other... I also does not necessarily mean that you should be because everyone's got a different path, right? So the most extreme Buddhist meditators or people of any other tradition uh, fully dedicate all of their time to burning all of their karma period to uh, extinguish their incarnation, right? And I don't get the sense that you want to do that, right? Um, so, so sure, we, so have I, obviously, you know, but I'm having too much fun. Maybe that will change. Uh, not fun. I hope the fun doesn't change, but maybe I will uh, 
decided to say fuck it but i don't think so because i i i actually quite enjoy this existence we'll see okay so then you have you say you have you have family karmas and so for most people they, they don't cut those they just simply improve the quality of them and carry them forward into the future right and, and then you have root karmas people around you largely the same um then you've got like you could say generational karmas or national karmas and that's what we're talking about when we are talking about like the karma of vietnam in america right which is a, a, a immensely immensely deep and heavy karma to say the very fucking least right it's fucking rough and um that is something that has been um despite getting very little media attention has been um you know not not just bringing the background but a lot of work has been done to repair i mean i just watched this ken burns vietnam documentary and this is a very touching moment at the end where it's interesting to watch a lot of um american servicemen have gone over to vietnam and reconnected with uh, previous Viet Cong or other military forces, right? And that now they're all old guys and they just have everything in common, right? They're like, oh, we're like old vets. Like they're like great friends, you know, they st- and they respect each other. It's something that's interesting about soldiers. It's like, well, you know, we were fighting for different sides, but we're all soldiers. We all, we're all the same, you know, it's like we all understand each other. So um, that's, that's one. And, you know, there's been so much effort on, on um, repairing some of that, those war wounds and also the environmental damage will linger for a very long time that needs to be cleaned up you know and so on and so forth so um so karma is people are always working to repair karma all around us if we look right and it's not doesn't have to be some big spiritual it can be something like what i just described and in fact you all it basically is right so you know i think that the, the the migration of buddhism including um southeast asian Buddhism to America is quite obviously a part of that as well. And the at the adoption of Buddhist practices by Americans is also very much a part of that. And um, sometimes, uh, and, and so I just want to point out that particularly now as spiritual practitioners, this is true in all of our lives, that when you adopt the spiritual practices of other cultures, you, you automatically step into the karma that you have with them. And uh, so, for instance, a particularly rough one is Vudan for western white people which i don't recommend because you're immediately stepping into the karmic minefield of slavery which is not going to go well for you because that was a, a, a human crime right and um so my what my point is not that the karma. so my point is this my point is not that the karma needs to be leveled out because all karma will be leveled out anyways um on a certain time scale as decided by the lords of karma right? My point is, do you want it taken out of you? <laughs> right? So my point is simply this, you know, as an individual practitioner, you need to clearly become aware of, you were pointing this out, you need to become very clearly aware of what is yours and what is not, right? And what makes, sh- be clear where you may be overstepping your boundaries. Are you potentially walking into um, karma that is not necessarily yours to pay? Or if it's, because group, I'll point it, point it, I'll you know, make another point. When you adopt spiritual practices, particularly esoteric ones, particularly magic ones, your karmic burn rate accelerates a lot, right? Uh, it, it pushes you off the, you know, uh, you know, most people uh, are, evolve very, very slowly on a spiral, very slowly, right? And then if you adopt magic, you go, you, you can, you can rock it out really quick but you may end up with seven lifetimes of karma on your back to burn all at once. And that's one of, that's actually the primary reason 
why people are like, oh, I started doing magic and all this shit started going wrong. It's like, well, yeah, you basically like, you know, you basically started shooting up steroids and then you're like, la, throw on the weight. I can take it. That's pretty much what happens. Right. Uh, and the group mind is like, oh, great. Another spiritual practitioner. Let's get some more karma, karma burned. Right. And if you're not careful, uh, you can uh, get flamed out really quick because a lot, if you go into that with a, a martyr mentality, uh, yeah. or self-sacrifice mentality, this, this wrecks people. We see it all the time. Right. And this is one of the reasons why I build in protections to that on every level of what I teach, because the, the overestimating your strength is very easy to do very easy, particularly if you come from a culture with a tradition of messianism, which, which all, uh, Western people do. And, um, if you have a Christian imprint, it's very easy to get all martyry and messianic and that, that, that doesn't go well. And so, um, it's very important to know your limits and know your strengths. So and then I, so then basically what I'm saying is particularly because of the part of the world that you're in, you need to be clear about what's yours and what's not, what is yours to burn and what is yours to mind your own business about. And the critical, the key to that is understanding volitionality. And this is something that almost all spiritual, spiritual traditions are very, very bad at. Um, and, you know, if you follow, you know, if you follow me and as a person, you follow the shit that I post on social media and things like that. I am extremely concerned with human freedom, right? It is very endangered at the moment. And one part of that, and I'm concerned with that on all levels. But one part of that is within the spiritual world and within the spiritual world, it is don't let yourself get talked into a scheme that's not actually your will, right? Because this is the, the, the beauty of the true will. It's, it's so easy to get into a spiritual tradition and it's like, oh, well, you just end up kind of like sweeping up after somebody else's mess or, or part of somebody else's scheme. And that's not how I teach. I teach you to, I teach people, figure out what you want and do it. Find your true will, right? Uh, not, not, you know, end up, you know, as an attache to the ashram for the next 17 incarnations. Uh, you know, and there's so many things like this where everyone's, anytime you see a group of people that is saying, we're going to save the world and we're all, you know, they're all wearing the same fucking white robe and shit. And they're all like, yeah, like, and they're all gathered around the leader and they may be very well-meaning, but whenever you hear them talking about like, we're going to feed the poor and save the world and we're going to do this together. It's like, well, they've surrendered their will. And that's theirs to do. That's fine if they want to do that. But, you know, look at the Tibetans, right? Look at the Tibetan Buddhists. They've been a group organism like many other cultures for, for a couple thousand years. And they, they're a group effort uh, where the, the, the individual will is subsumed to the overall um, goal of the group in various ways. They're a, they're a magical culture. Um, and that there's pros and cons to that approach. It's not how I teach because I think that in general, the reason that I don't teach like that, I think that you, you will understand very clearly from your experience, which is that in my observation, both of my own life, having done Western and Eastern magic and my observation of um, long-term skilled and dedicated students of Eastern techniques, such as yourself, um, whether that's Hindu or Buddhist, is that they kind of, they all end up in the same place that you generally are, right? Which is well, I'm meditating a lot, but I can't really get my life together. And I have no, like there's, you lose all your purchase with material reality. It's kind of like, and you don't really want it either. It's kind of like, well, 
you know, I'd rather just sit and meditate because I feel so fulfilled. Why should I do anything? And then you kind of lose your, all of your um, volitionality in the world. You lose your power within the world. And those traditions are supposed to do that. That's the whole point of them. They're, they're meant to, you know, but it's like, I think that particularly Dion Fortune makes this point, you know, it's like, that is not in general, I'm not saying in all cases, but her point is that, and it's a, it's an essentialist point and a point that would be considered problematic now. But her point back then was, this isn't healthy for Western people. It's an Eastern mentality. Western people are hardwired to go do shit and manifest stuff in the world, which is why our spiritual path is quote unquote magic. It's why it's, it's why it's, uh, you know, the path of magic is, or this, and it's not just because the magic is the spiritual path is just the crystallization of the natural pattern of the group. Anyways, the, the general tendency of Western people is to go and manifest in the world. And that means building stuff. Uh, and it means imperialism, uh, and, and, in a, in a, in its most negative sense. Right. And, and, um, her point is that that is so much the native pattern of Western people that it's actually quite unhealthy, uh, to adopt the complete renunciative viewpoint. And I will say that in my own personal experience and my experience with myself in my life, I have found that to be true. And I was quite enlightened all the time and awake all the time when I was simply doing uh, Eastern practices, but I wasn't building a life and I really had no power in the world. And it took quite a long time to get out of. And the way that I've done it is really weird. I think you'll probably agree, right? So um, uh, and uh, similarly, um, um, Herman Melville, you know, in Moby Dick makes the point uh, that is so, uh, which I'm reading right now, but it's so on point, but I've, I've always thought about this my whole life. He makes the point in that book, um, don't, if you take, be very careful, be very careful before you take one, even one step off the path laid out for you by society, because you may not get it back. Mm -hmm. Now apply that to people like us who've taken 10, 20 years off of the path laid out for them by society. Well, <laughs> so, um, life, man, like I, I was fortunate to have computer capabilities at a young age. And I thought, well, I can go be a meditator guy and come back still plug right back in and every the longer you go the longer the harder it is to figure your way back and unless you you, you want yeah. you want to engage with with all that computers do make it easier i mean hey yeah you know but yeah 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 at least it's a thing to do yeah uh and 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 we do live in a new world where it is possible to be a digital nomad and it is possible you know the ways to make your living change every day i mean we live in a world of crypto and nfts and being able to work remotely and all this stuff. So, so, and you know, there's infinite ways to make your way. And, and, um, you know, I, th I think that it's much more of a secure position to be a self-reliant person than to rely on, like, I mean, imagine like being a vice president of blockbuster 15 years ago and or 20 years ago, and you think you're set. I mean, my God. Right. So, um, I think that the world changes around you regardless. So you've yeah. got to be sovereign in yourself with your own self-awareness of your skills and be flexible and adaptable. And if we're going to be nomads or if we're going to be in America, which is falling in, in some way we don't know, uh, we've got to be like you always depict the magician who can have nothing, but somehow rise above it. Um, you know, that's extreme. Hopefully you're not the magician with nothing. Hopefully you're fortified, but um, there's no, it's, un, it's unclear where the safe place is other than hopefully within yourself. Yeah, so I agree. The era of monastery practice, I mean, whether, whether it's over or not, I agree. It doesn't quite fit with, uh, with us. And 
I, you touched on a few things there, you know, especially talking about the group karma, um, the tendencies of the messianic um, mentality to kind of have an unconscious need to take care of everyone else's stuff uh, or to heal and save, or the Tibetan, um, you know, tonglining the whole world, um, uh, which, which actually, uh, interesting you touched that because at the beginning of all this, before I even found a teacher or had any kind of anything, I read some Dalai Lama book and the Bodhisattva vow made sense. And I took it very seriously when I was like 16. And, um, it was just two years ago, um, that it hit me in some you know, strange state of mind I was in that I was living that out, that I was basically a, a spiritual consciousness, codependent warrior, <laughs> like, <laughs> do, <laughs> unconsciously trying to heal the world's karma in order to, you know, then have permission to live my personal life, which was exhausting and a job I didn't really want. Right. right? But trusting this other tradition or whoever to know what they're doing and just kind of you bow before them and say, okay, Dalai Lama, you, you must know what's up. I'll just assume your mentality because you say so. Well, how, and, how are they doing? And that's before I even knew how they're doing, right? And, and that was, that's the point. They're not exactly doing the way I want to be doing. Well, but, I, but say again uh, what, you, what you just said, which is you said it was, because I, I want to be, I, it was you, what you, the way that you said it was perfect. So I want you to say it again. It was basically like you are, uh, you, you need the world to be healed and then you can live your life basically. Yeah. Yeah. It was the, um, it was like being a code a, a spiritualized version of a codependent expression of consciousness where I, the, the, the world has to be enlightened before I could then have permission to live my, my individual life. So, so do we have like a date uh, when those conditions will be in that? Give me a while. If, if that's, yeah, I mean, that, that's a hell of a precondition for happiness, yeah. but it's yeah, very common. Hopefully that's, that's not affecting me anymore. Cause once I, I felt that in myself, I was like, Whoa, okay, that was a mistake. I don't know if I can rescind that oath, but I'm going to try. Like, I just, you can do whatever you want. Intense resolve to, to you no can do whatever stuff. you want. Mm. Do you think oaths can be edited like that so let, let me let me let me say this one more time because this is a much more important point than you might think and let me say this again you can do whatever you want <laughs> i'm completely serious yeah you can do whatever you want there is no uh, binding of human will unless you choose it mm. not in this universe um and oaths are binding as long as you allow them to be. And now I don't want to get into trouble and I don't want to take the karma of breaking your oath. So I'm not going to, I will just simply point out that for my, in my way of thinking, the individual is absolutely sovereign. As Parsons said, the individual will is sovereign above the will of family, society, or God. Mm. And it must be that way because it is that way. You can do whatever you want because if you can't, then your actions are meaningless. You're just a part of a factory. So, and, and, and this is what everyone has forgotten and always has. Um, people don't remember that because it's too scary. They would rather surrender their will to some external organism. And yeah. um, 
<laughs> but uh, I'm an Odinist. Odin is the oath breaker. You know, he just fucks with everything. So, uh, or the coyote, you know, it's like, but think about here. So, so, but let's just talk about the Bodhisattva Val. Now, I'm not recommending any course of action for you. It's not my business. It's not my position. I'll just, I'm just going to relate how I think about things. It is extremely bad karma in Buddhism to break people's oaths. So I'm not going to do it, but I'm just going to talk about what I do. So, uh, it's O-D-I-N, not E-N. Odin is a gun in Call of Duty, O-D-E-N. That is, I am also an Odinist because I play a lot of Call of Duty, but I'm talking about Odin the God. So the uh, the Bodhisattva vow, let's talk about it, okay? The Bodhisattva vow was created by, again, you know all this, but I'm saying this for the benefit of other people on the call. Uh, the, uh, um, the Bodhisattva vow is, you know, uh, began something like 200 BC, right? Mahayana Buddhist tradition. It was not the original teaching of the Buddha, um, and is largely, I forgo my own enlightenment until all other beings are enlightened. Now, one of my teachers pointed this out to me. It's like, that's like fucking reservoir dogs, man. Because imagine like a whole room of people all pointing guns at each other's heads saying like, you know, I'm not going to get enlightened until you get enlightened. Well, I'm not going to get enlightened until you get enlightened. It's like, well, well who's going first? <laughs> you know, in the words of, of uh, uh, Brad Pitt and Inglorious Bastard, Bastard, that is a Mexican standoff and that is not the deal. So... If anyone remembers that part, it's my favorite part in the movie. So, what? Remember that? Remember that quote? Which film was that? The Inglorious Bastards, where Brad Pitt is trying to come in, like the uh, uh, the uh, the German, the English spy pretending to be German, and like gets in a gunfight with everyone, and then Brad Pitt is trying to come down the stairs into the cafe in France, and he's like, uh, uh, "Me no guns, you no guns." It's like you got a gun on me. Well, that is a Mexican standoff, and that is not the deal. So that's kind of my opinion on the the Bodhisattva now. So, yeah. um, it's like, well, how, and it just comes down to, well, if nobody, if everyone's waiting for everyone else to be enlightened, well, then how do you know? And nobody's enlightened. How the fuck do you enlighten anyone? And why are we, why are we all at the threshold? This is pointless. Everyone what? should just be, you know, going as fast as possible to yeah. everyone else. Yeah. And it turns out that's actually a quite a great way to establish a large spiritual feudal empire of people at the threshold, none of whom are actually enlightened, but are all working for you. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, who am I to say, but what, what the fuck, you know, like if nobody's enlightened, like, uh, or at least awaken, it's like, well, fucking who first, right? And this is kind of the problem. And then, then, you know, at least the way that it was taught to me, what you eventually, and that, that eventually what happens is you generate these vast hell realms where everyone is like in these hell realms, like, tr- like, and no one can leave because they're waiting for everyone else to leave first. And Buddhist Tibetans, Vajrayana in particular, are notorious for intensifying negative conditions in the hope that it will snap people out of it. And yet they're all oath to not snap out of it. You can see the potential disaster, the potential for disaster. So this is just one opinion. This is one way it was taught to me, whether this is absolutely true, I don't know. Right. But this is um, one model. And I think that, but let's just look at this practically. I mean, for you, right. Not in terms of spiritual geopolitics. I mean, you basically said that you, you were operating on the principle that you will not be happy until everyone else is enlightened. Well, hmm, you've been on Instagram lately? You know, like, <laughs> it's not going to happen, obviously. Uh, not anytime soon. And, and in fact, and I, I, I think about this a lot uh, because the Bodhisattva vow itself is core to so much magical politics because so much of what's come after, not just in Buddhism, but in so many other traditions, all of which have been infiltrated by Tibetans, uh, is, uh, you know, through one way or the other, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. It's just that like, 
it, there's a lot of these spiritual groups have been set up as part of the Kala Chakra. So one of the, the issues there is, I think about this a lot because, okay, in 200 BC, there was something like 250 million people in the world. So it seems like a big job, but it's just within the realm of plausibility that that could actually happen because you think about what was going on at the time. So in 200 BC, I mean, like, you know, in the last 300 years, um, or however long it had been, almost all of Northeast India had converted to Buddhism and were essentially doing Vipassana practices and becoming enlightened. So you can understand it from that perspective. Um, it would make a lot of sense to say, well, let's do the whole world. In the, the, as the Scientologists say, let's clear the whole planet, you know. It would make a lot of sense. I mean, I, I don't think that that's necessarily an unreasonable plan for the time. Now, what they didn't factor for, tragically, because at the end of the day, uh, I think that the, the largely the Indo-Aryan spiritual conception of the world, which is, and it's all one thing, vastly one tradition, in a sense, which would we, into which we can include European paganism, as well as Hinduism and Buddhism, right? It's all largely one group across spread out across a large one, one genetic group. Um, uh, what they did not, what they did not factor was the onslaught of the Abrahamic traditions. So they didn't understand, they didn't factor that India was going to get conquered by Islam. They didn't factor that India was later going to get conquered by England. They didn't, they didn't factor that it was going to, Tibet would be conquered by Mao's China. Um, uh, and then there were, you know, there were the Mughals, there were the Mongols, there were, there was a lot of violence. And, um, you know, India was largely a Buddhist country before they were, I mean, and then Ashoka obviously used it as an imperialist force throughout India, but uh, they got, they got, they got bulldozed, right? In the same way that so many other cultures have been bulldozed throughout the world by other cultures, you know, and it's not necessarily to point the finger at, well, I mean, we can largely point the finger at the Abrahamic traditions in a way, you know, which have now in our world currently morphed into secular humanism, post-Marxism, all this stuff, you know, but it's all the same thing. And, um, or just capitalism, you know, all this stuff, right? It's all, it's all comes from the same uh, fundamental assumptions. So um, neoliberalism, how's it different? You know, it's, it's just not. So, um, by the way, it's fascinating. I'm in Thailand, which is one of the few places that kind of did, that has maintained its kingdom and sovereignty for yeah. a long time. Yeah, I mean, Nepal was almost, I mean, Nepal was the, the, the other one, but they got, they got knocked over by the Maoists. I mean, yeah, it's like, it's a magical place, literally, you know, that's why I'm so drawn to it. Uh, other, there's a few other places like that, Nepal, Bali, uh, Haiti, despite the fact that it's so troubled, all this, you know, but yeah, so, so um, the, uh, um, so, but anyways, you, you can see how it would make sense at the time to say, well, shit you know, let's, and they, they, you know, there were 250 million people in the world, but they probably didn't know that even they didn't know how big the world is, or they may have, because there's even archeological records that they may have been to America, um, early on, maybe, I mean, we don't really know. Right. But they didn't have like, you know, like Wikipedia to, to just get, you know, get a satellite count, you know, Google earth. So, so it was probably a reasonable assumption to make that it might actually just be possible. But now we have, I think, I think we are, somebody please tell me, are we at 8 billion people already? I think we might've hit that threshold or if not, we're about to, and it's going to be 9 billion. It's going to be 9 billion people in by 2050. And the majority of them will be Muslims. 
the world is going to be like 61% um, Islamic by 2050. So good luck, right? If there's any religion, 7.8 billion. Okay, thank you. Yeah, it's close, right? I mean, that and with those numbers, that can, that can change really fast. So if there's any religion which, which has any chance of converting the entire planet, it's Islam. It's just, yeah. that's just, they, they have the numbers, right? It's not Christianity, even though there's currently more Christians in the world, that, that will change. So um, and, uh, historically, uh, Islam and Buddhism has not, have not gotten along very well. They're not getting along very well in Myanmar, you know? So um, in fact, if you look into the Kala Chakra Tantra and things like that, there's even things in there that they don't talk about. There's even things in there about the final war between both religions. It's not just a Christian apocalyptic thing. So um, my point being that sunk cost fallacy, so, you know, sunk cost fallacy, Yes. Yeah. It's that's all it is. It's like, okay, like when it was 250 million people and we didn't even realize it was that many reasonable plan. Now, how reasonable is it? Right. Oh, crap. Too many people. We got other projects too. We got to fight off all these people. Well, we don't have to fight off people. Or I, I'm <laughs> saying that Ben's found themselves in a situation in these other cultures where they were, they had some other projects afoot. Yeah. Well, my, my point is simply this. The plan, sadly, sadly, very tragically, did not work. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And, and this breaks, you know, it's like, I, I, what, what can I say, right? But when a plan doesn't work, there's two things you can do. You can lament it and go down with the ship, uh, which helps no one, very few people. Or you can recalibrate and live to fight another day, and then you keep fighting. Yeah, well, and hope for some unknown, some uh, new information to present itself from the mystery. Uh, or just with the, the evidence of your own senses, right? Because, you know, it's like, uh, this is another thing that spiritual people often do. They wait for a sign. It's like, oh, well, look, the sign is what's in front of your face, right? Do, do what good you can with what you have right now, with the person that you are, right? Because it's okay, in my way of thinking, it is okay to take the general spirit of something that you truly believe in, but the approach is not working. And a big part of that is oaths. If your oath, this is the problem with oaths, and this is why I don't expect people to take oaths, and I never bring it up. If you want to take oaths, that's fine. Um, but I will never require oaths from anyone. Not in this sense. Maybe if I need to give people NDAs that they're working for me, that's working for me, that's different. But um, the... Uh, I, even those have an expiration date, you know? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Scientologist contracts have like a billion year, uh, expiration date. It's ridiculous. So, um, uh, although you'd be, you'd be better sort of joining Scientology at this point than the Tibetans. So, um, the, <laughs> so, um, my point is, is, is simply this. It's like, you, if you're oathed to a plan that is not working, that somebody came up with 20, uh, 2,200 years ago, before they even knew about um, uh, virology or gravity or evolution, or they had a very different conception of the world, it was a very different time. Uh, if you're, you're oathed to continue a strategy that is outdated, how's that going to go? I mean, it's like, it's, is it noble? Well, not really actually, because it's just like, look, you, you gotta, when we, you have to be able to think you can't just blindly take actions. That's not consciousness. It's like, you know, it's like, 
you have to be able to recalibrate. I mean, look how radically different and it will probably continue to become even more different. I mean, look, I'm, I'm still in theory, well, I still am literally uh, fulfilling the duties of the AA tradition as, as laid down or the hermetic tradition. But how radically different is it how I'm doing it than how it's written down on paper, right? I'm not saying this is the AA. I'm just saying that in general, what I am doing is uh, fulfilling is fulfilling the hermetic tradition in the best way that I know how. But you have to be able to recalibrate it to your own time period. That even the Buddhists make that point. Uh, everyone re everyone returns the wheel of the Dharma. So in a sense, it's like, well, if the plan's not working, you got to be able to change it. Otherwise, you're just going to keep getting the same results. It's not going to work, and then nobody's saved. It's just wasted energy. And the Bodhisattva vow, well, <sighs> it's beautiful. Um, it is outnumbered. And I, I simply make this point that martyrdom saves no, you know, martyrdom serves nobody. I don't think, I think that, look, I mean, there's so many issues that there's so many tangible issues that we can fight over here and now uh, main, making sure that people stay out of digital concentration camps, which we're, e we're e edging into very quickly, you know, making sure that people are free, that they're not databased in as in facial recognition databases and totally restricted in how they move as human beings doing or the type of thing that I'm doing, which is simply making sure that people have access to the information. So for instance, the way that I've navigated it is I, and I say this repeatedly, and if any of you have been on when, with me for some period of time or been on multiple of these calls or taking my classes, you've heard me say this, is I do not care, <laughs> okay? I don't care about your spiritual status, right? I don't care whether you become enlightened or not or whether you become more compassionate or a better person or whatever. I fucking do not care. Why? Not because I don't care about you, but because it's none of my business, your, your life and your spirituality is none of my business. It, you're a totally sovereign individual, right? And it, it's, it, if, you, if you think that I can be of help to you in, in the way that you want to ask me a question and you, you know, we can have this interaction, then great. I'm happy to do that. I'm, I'm providing a service. But I'm not taking responsibility for other people. I'm not saying that I, uh, you know, like I, you have to be enlightened or I've failed or anything like this. It's like, it's because it, it's, that's your choice. It's not my choice. I'm not the boss of you, right? And, and because I don't want you to be the boss of me, because if I make myself the boss of you, then you get to be the boss of me. And that's a Mexican standoff. And that was not the deal, right? The point is everyone has to be free, but that's a position of respect. It's not a position of, of, um, a position of respect of not making yourself a martyr for other people. It's at best providing a good example and being of service, but this is karma yoga, right? This is the Hindu conception. Karma yoga is you do the best you can and you release yourself from the results. Meaning it's you, you do the best you can and then you give the results to God because it's not mine to decide and it's not mine to sort out. I'm just not that big of a deal, you know? So, so um, this is my perspective and, and this is specifically my perspective in contravention to the Bodhisattva vow where the Bodhisattva vow is I will not attain enlightenment until everyone else has and that, well that, that that's an impossible situation and in your case the way you phrased it is it's impossible for you to even be happy but people do this all the time it's not just with this they'll say well you know like I, i'll i'll make a million dollars and then i'll be happy i'll right. uh get, make sure my sister uh it has her career on track and then i'll be happy i'll take care of my dying uh, uh mother and then i'll be happy uh i'll i'll uh 
you know, make sure that Trump is out of office and then I'll be happy. It's like you name pick, you know, people do this all the time. It's very common. It's not just a spiritual thing. And they defer, they, they set up impossible expectations for themselves and it's cruelty and they don't even fully realize that they're doing it. They, they make it, 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 it to bring this together. Maybe it, you know, it seems to me like that is a function of the mind that is just a flaw. I mean, it's just like it not, there's, there's more awakening that can be done. There's more clarity that can be achieved. I mean, I feel like this discovery that I was operating a Bodhisattva vow was sort of like realizing you're operating a unconscious group karma. And absolutely when it pushed me into directions that, that revealed it, then I had the opportunity to say, okay, no, thank you. This just doesn't reflect reality. Um, you know, like the, the sovereign philosopher King who's awake with his own thalamic will will is another option, which might actually be a higher level of clarity. Right. So I appreciate what you're trying to say that that's the approach you're offering as one possibility. Is it a higher level? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it depends, but are there higher and lower levels? I, I, but that's what my thesis is that it might be that, you know, it might just be, um, a, a pretty, I have to ask what is the utility of such a thing? Cause there's not just the, the Bodhisattva vow from the Buddhist angle, but there's, I mean, I, like I said, I was sort of a Christian mystic, but by accident for a number of years after that, where the mentality was similar to karma yoga, where thy will be done. And the yeah. whole thing was That's the same. No, no will, you know, it's a, it's a, you're kind of presuming there's a higher will that is, that's, that is in control and uh, you know, gets to run the show. And so the benefit is you attach yourself to this construct because it will deliver you. But the downside is, or maybe the, the, um, the maybe the, the near enemy, maybe the corrupt desire is that you just don't have to take responsibility for the whole thing anymore. You let it do the thing. Right. No, no, totally. I mean, these are, you know, very fundamental operational questions and it's, they're very important ones. And this is, and I'm glad we're talking about this. This is often a point I try to make, which is, you know, it's these questions uh, and working through these things, which seem like uh, abstruse uh, uh, philosophical topics. This stuff is actually way more important than anything else. It's way more important than whatever technique, you know, pentagrams or whatever, you know, yeah. like, this is what's actually what actually matters and what makes vast changes in people's lives. That's right. It's not just abstract philosophy. It feels like it is a, it is like an operating system of the mind. That yeah, it is, you, it is, it is. It is. Plugging into a tradition, which presents it to you and provides a vehicle to awakening in a, in a certain regard. But I have to remember my, my first teacher we never met, but he had some things that stuck with me. And he said, you, it, you have to develop your own reason and intuition and vector of energy. And you don't know what's true. So you got to move away from what's not true and keep building that vector of energy um, to have this kind of organic, but, but intensely self-directed process because at some point the railroad tracks run out. And I see mm. these in what way, what, what do you mean? Well, the traditions such as the Bodhisattva vow or the, the Christian or a karma yoga surrender, um, uh, construct is, can pull you to its level, so to speak. But if I feel like there's a fundamental flaw that we've been fleshing out about, about, you know, where that leads and, uh, but, but that can be transcended. You don't need a guru to come and t- to show you what to do. Maybe that's the lesson is you have to ask yourself somehow, you know, step into that. Yeah, you do. 
Well, I mean, to be totally frank, one of the reasons why they only pull you up, why many of these systems only pull you up to a certain level and no further is, is, is that the leader doesn't want to be threatened. <laughs> and that's, that's gone on for a long time, right? It's, it's kind of like in the same way that professors, um, you know, pull people up to the level of grad student and, and uh, you know, benefit from their work. But they don't like you don't end as a tenured. They don't bring you up to the level of tenured professor, right? Because then that threatens them. Or it's true in any organization. Uh, and actually, the best form of leadership, is, as we've learned very recently, is you know good leaders try to hire people that are smarter than them and and raise people up to a higher level than them, if at all possible. Now, easier said than done, because that kind of goes against human nature. But this is very true in spiritual groups, and I think that. Um, but the other aspect of that is, ironically, at least the way that it's played out in my life is um, because I've, I've played this game with many different spiritual groups. It's like where I get up to as high as and it's interesting because often what happened in my life is I would get up to the highest level that I could within the tradition or the group. And often it would just be a few people or whatever. And then they would turn on me. And it was like, and I would get into these ego battles with the, but it's, it's part of the developmental stage where you become like, you hit the adolescent level and then you kind of like butt heads with your parents. Right. But, but it can become very vicious. And, um, the, and, and I think that's has to happen. You have to get kicked out of the nest. And that happened with me in many ways, in many, actually with like, like four spiritual groups all in the same year. And, um, the often in my case, uh, what what instigated it was actually trying to use the techniques in the world and, and instead of just like talking about them. And then that freaked people out. It was like, no, you're not actually supposed to do it. What do you, what? <laughs> so, yeah. so um, because people build people, it's very easy and I'm in danger of it. It's very easy to build a kind of spiritual world around yourself and just get comfortable within it. And it's, I'm in great danger of that, to be quite honest, because now, you know, it's like there's, I get financial benefits from it and all this. So it's very tricky to navigate. So, um, and for this reason, I, I always, you know, I, I urge everyone, it's like, you know, this is not the be all end all, you know, I'm sure people will, you know, many people will come to disagree with me on things and that's fine. And, and people will decide that they've, they've had enough of me and they'll, they'll unsubscribe and leave and go do something else. And that's fine. That's why I don't do oaths. There's no volitionality. I'm not keeping anyone here. If I'm of service to you, great. If I'm not, then move on. It's like, that, that's fine. You know, there are other people that can, I can be of service to. And, and so I, I don't, whole i don't cling to people you know and it's like i love all my students but it's like if people don't want to be here that's okay i don't begrudge anyone that obviously it's it's only useful as long as it's useful so um the but i think the general point there is that you always have to keep volitionality and i think you're spot on when you're saying it's like you're being kind of subjected to group karmas by the tradition now ironically really the way to develop that discernment at least the way that i did it is to go through a lot of traditions and do it exactly other people's way until you hit the contradictions or you you, you know it's a, so it's very useful to learn in that way you can't really just reinvent the wheel yourself so it's not a bad thing to go through even the most more even the most restricting and moribund traditions i don't think all experiences are good so um but you know, there comes a point, particularly when you're older, where it's like, well, you know, time is limited and you, you really have to ask yourself, it's like, well, what am I really going to yeah. contribute to the world? What do I want my life to be? What am I going to give, you know? And that, that's a real question. I mean, it's, it's hard to answer. And it's like, you can't, the tradition's not going to answer it for you because these traditions are thousands of years old. They don't, they don't even have a language for, they, how the fuck are they? They don't even, they were created in languages at times before the internet, before global warming, before they have no language for even beginning to address the problems 
of, of the modern world. And so many of them, no matter how apparently out there they are, almost all spiritual traditions, because their traditions by nature are profoundly conservative, profoundly in the sense that they're time capsules from other worlds and other times. And it's very tempting also to go live in that time. In fact, many people just totally take like this, like Julius Evola, like traditionalist approach where they're just like, yeah, like I'm just going to go live in this LARP dimension and, and not, and just not even deal with the modern world because it's fallen. And it's like, well, that's one approach you can do that. But, but the, the, the fundamental thing that people need to understand is none of these traditions even have a language to begin comprehending the complexities of the world that we're in. They just don't. They, they, they just don't. I mean, the, the best that they have is like, you know, eschatological texts, like, oh, the book of Revelation. Like, yeah, shit's going to suck. Okay, well, great. That's very helpful. Thank you. You know, it's like, well, it is helpful in the sense that, that it's, you know, they, they point out the importance of you, you must cling to God, right? You must cling to the truth. That will never change. And so, and, and the practices will never change. And all of that is deeply comforting and things like that. But they're not going to tell you how to stay out of facial recognition databases or how to, you know, how to, uh, they'll warn you about them, but they won't tell you how to deal. We got to figure that out on our own. Right. So there's, yeah. Okay. So I really feel like there's the connection to as above, so below of the daily, everyday awakening and life management practices that are somehow the, the, the big picture is, is that we've been discussing is, uh, equally relevant in the same process. Um, maybe I feel like that was very useful for recontextualizing, but uh, let me, let me bring you, bring you back to the practical of the, maybe the other two questions. And I think where I feel that I am now with my daily everything practice is sort of a, a Bruce Lee grab a few things that I know are useful, uh, try to stabilize myself. PTSD remedy stuff has been very effective. ADEPT initiative has been very helpful. I hadn't, haven't finished Actually, I haven't done um, much Raja Yoga. I did like everything else, trying to get my head right. And somewhere in that process, I had the strong feeling I needed to learn the banishing rituals. So I memorized all of them, and I've been doing them regularly. And I something is really helping. I assume it's that. Um, so kind of on the nuts and bolts side of things, you know, I, I just sort of memorized. Just wanted to get it down, get it memorized before studying too much. Um, so I, I do the, the pentagram banishing every day. I, I've, I sometimes do the hexagram banishing. I often do that every day. I do these things multiple times a day. Um, I occasionally do a formal meditation now. So about the original dramas that I'm trying to prevent having and just to be anchored in myself, I read somewhere that these banishing rituals on, on the technical side of things help turn off the cliffotic aspects of the Kabbalah, whatever that means. Yep. I haven't studied this too much. Does that translate to preventing craziness while you're navigating the dark night? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's really simple. It means that everything in life has its, it's a, a kind of its platonic, uh, pure expression. And then it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not even the negative counterpart. It's like the distorted reflection of it right or the, or the perverse version of it it's like and and that's the cliffotic aspect it technically there's many more strata than that but um you know just think of it in terms of like clean and dirty water you know so if you want to work with the element of water then you want to banish the impure aspects of it you know like when i, I have a water filter when i filter the water i get pure water and all the cliffhoff is banished from it 
How do so, you really banish it from a karmic level? Aren't you just pushing it <laughs> bounce around to you from the other side? Like how, you know, why, why not just surrender to what's happening? Like we were saying, the, the thing, this is actually quite critical because there are the whole traditions that don't understand this point at all. Um, and the African Caribbean ones in many cases are, are, are don't get it. Um, uh, and, and very often just move things around, yeah. right? They'll move a karma from one thing to another or an animal or something like that, uh, or to a different place in your life. And it's like, well, the, the thing that, um, the thing that makes them different is you have to have access to a divine transcendent source of divine infinite intelligence. And therefore the theist system systems of which Western magic is a theist system are um, that's how they do it. You have to have access to the, the mainframe in order to, you know, change to, in order to make, make changes like that. And then, uh, uh, and Buddhism does not. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, Buddhist techniques mean, you know, I, I know people who really hurt themselves. I mean, and are dead because they, they miss, uh, they, they actually were Daniel Ingram stuff. Um, but they weren't, they had no teacher. They were just doing it out of a book. So, uh, um, you know, approaching uh, Buddhist techniques. That's what allowed to do without any direct teacher. Yeah, that's not just generally not a good idea. Um, and I think that, uh, so I'm not saying that's his fault. I'm saying that, that they were just winging it. And, and uh, the, um, and they, you know, and one, yeah, anyway, I shouldn't say too much about this. It's personal, but yeah. the, um, uh, the, the one, one, of, one of the drawbacks of, of doing Buddhist techniques from a purely non-theistic perspective is there's no, there's no, uh, there's no access to that. It makes it much harder. No access to teacher? No access to God. Uh, to higher intelligence. Right. It's like, it's meaning the, the equation always becomes self-contained. There's no way to, there's no pressure release from it. There's no way to have the entire thing recontextualized in a second. And uh, uh, think of the Christian concept of forgiveness, right? There's no logic to that. But what is forgiveness? What is the, you know, the sacrifice of, sacrifice of Christ is, is the debts are paid. They're already paid. Mm. That's not in Buddhism. Okay. It's not in other tradition. Gravitated to the Christian mystic period because it, th that was the transition of mentality had to go through was that there's something helping you if you yes. allow it. And maybe ultimately that thing is you, but it feels like an other. So while well, it feels like an other, let it be another. Sure. Yeah. And, and, um, th there, there needs to be a, an infinite, you know, you need, access you know the the, in, the infinity symbol needs to be in your equation somewhere because otherwise it's just a closed loop and it's just going to be you know it's, it's it's a grueling process grueling and dry buddhists yeah. get pretty dry and yeah buddhists are so fucking boring jesus christ make you cry with love <laughs> and when you find the tears of love you don't want to go back to wearing brown have you seen what they fucking eat by the way particularly the, the tibetans you look at tibetan food it's like that'll make you want to make this your last incarnation because they have like they eat like yak gristle with like hair still in it and stuff <laughs> it's just like and like even when it's like even when there's no hair it's like steamed flavorless momos and it's just like what like how dare you it's, it's just like but it, it, you know it's like it's so it so reflects the worldview you know it's just life is suffering yeah, yeah daniel told me don't go to burma he said you can to go sit with his teacher but all they eat is oily greens so go to Malaysia where they have better, the same teachers, but better food. Well, Thailand's great for food, you know. Uh, yeah, well, so any, I, don't, I don't know about the teachers, but the... Okay. Uh, the, the, 
So, so anyways, I mean, look, look, I mean, to, to, to answer your initial question, after all that, my, my general point is you're and see, this is always how I do it. I talk for like two hours and I just give you the, the simple answer, right? Okay. Your initial question. Okay. I absolutely love it. So I don't know how much energy you have, but I'm, well, I definitely need that. to at least stop this question because I need a cup of tea before I do other ones. So, but, um, the, um, my, my uh, my point is, Okay, there's two ways. There's two. There's two ways that you can. You have to do, and you have to do both, right? It's like there's two levels to to the meditative experience. Like it's there's meditation you do on the mat, whether that's in a monastery or not. There's your mat meditation, and then there's your life, right? So you want to, and this is how I teach it in the Adept Initiative. And of course, the Adept Initiative is the best stuff that I know, all in one place for life for manifesting a very good life very quickly, right? Particularly when combined with Fortuna. Right. So all the techniques are there. If you just want to get build a, a, a functional, uh, functional life, that's all there. Uh, it's a great system. Uh, people okay. used it to great effect. Um, yeah. the, um, but there's the meditation you do on the mat, which if you want to take this model burns karma, and then there's the meditation and, or, or another way of putting it is, is clarifies your mind, right? And gets you clear about who you are and what you want and assists you in seeing through bullshit it's bullshit loops that are running in your mind so that you're no longer subject to them right and one of the things that you see through is where other people have laid their trips on you as they said in the 60s and, and that's so many things that could be friends co-workers family as we talked about in the last call or it could be the bodhisattva vow is a trip that's been laid on you but when you become aware of it that it's not it's not from you then you realize you have volition and choice about whether you want to do that or not right for instance as just one example, right? Or, wow, I'm in burning karma in Vietnam. Like, do I really want to be doing this? Why am I doing this? Where did this come from? Maybe it was some interaction you have with somebody that pre-programmed that. So the, um, the, um, so there's that, there's meditation view on the mat. And then there's how you, you, then you take that muscle out into the world. The meditation on the mat is just the gym, but then you deal with your life. Right. And, um, you build that muscle on the mat and then you go into the world and then you respond as you were saying, like through non-reaction, you try to navigate with consciousness as much as possible to your existence. And, you know, both karma is accelerated and burned in both places. It is burned on the mat. It is burned in reality. In general, if you can burn it on the mat, you won't experience it in reality. But if you can't either can't burn it on the mat or Okay, like, so for instance, let's say you're trying to, you know, there's a karmic loop comes out or a karmic block that you need to work through to get to your next level of evolution in your life, okay? So you can sit on the mat, and in most cases, if you do put in the time, assuming you just don't get lazy, uh, you do put in the time on the mat, you can burn through that loop simply within the meditative process. But if you don't, or you choose not to, or it just proves too difficult, then you have to do it through your life. Right. And it will manifest through, a, you know, a certain person coming into your life or being in a certain a circumstance or situation where, you know, to be colloquial about it, you, you get the point. The, the lesson that you need to learn is learned. Right. So but if you can do it on the mat in the meditation process, then it, you don't have to do it in manifestation um, or not in the same way. And and that therefore meditation quite, quite vastly accelerates your evolution. But it would, unless you're a full monastic, also be a mistake to think that you can then only sit on the mat and do nothing else. You can do that if you want to be a full renunciate. But if you're not a full renunciate, and basically nobody who takes these courses is, um, 
then because uh, if you were a full renunciate, you would be in a monastery already under the supervision of, of a full tradition, right? So you wouldn't be yeah. taking these classes, I'm guessing, unless you are, in which case, hello, welcome, have a, have a cup of tea. But, um, but, but the, um, since we are all have our karmas within the world, then, then we by definition have to do both. Um, but, um, in general, I will say that if you drop off your meditation, uh, things get harder. And if you do meditation daily, they get easier. And it's also very tempting with magic or meditation or anything else to get to a certain point where you're like, I'm enlightened. So I don't even need to do all this anymore. And that's that that makes things that 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 makes things harder, you know. I mean, like obviously practices change. They don't need to be approached with the same intensity. Sometimes they can be put on maintenance level. But if one simply stops practice altogether, um, well, I'll just say this: you can you can have go wilding out in the world. I mean, it, sure, you know, I've done it. But um, it, it, it that that central axle of your life uh, tends to become unhinged, and uh, um, it, life gets harder your day-to-day stresses seem much more real. Let me put it that way to be more specific. And and that's not fun. Okay. So it sounds like, uh, don't throw away core practice. Always keep that going. Deal with your life. Um, I'm not sure where the banishing stuff and maybe the kind of magical, the stuff I consider Western magical practices fit in. Banishing rituals are a brute force technique for forcing out um, trips, (laughs) trips that other people laid on you that don't belong to you. Okay. It's a brute banishings are a brute force technique to push out crap and they're quite useful, uh, but you do them before meditation. Okay. That's what I've been doing. And that feels right. And that's what Alan was also recommending. Yeah. Um, you yeah. can make up your own, even if you want, I mean, you don't need to do the traditional form, but it's good to have some ritual um, delineation of practice space where you force out everything that is not, you can simply contextualize it as all that does not pertain to my true will. Okay. Now, do the archangels serve some purpose of like, like you're talking yes. about the higher intelligence doing some work for you? Yeah. And during the Christian period, it was just God or Jesus or something. But now I've got the complexity of archangels and everything. Is is that another version of doing the same process? Well, it's it's the traditional way of doing it. And it calls in the big guns. So it's not just you. And the reason that it's the archangels is in the hermetic tradition, in the, the context of the hermetic tradition, is the, the reason it's the archangels is because the archangels are much closer to you on the scale of evolution. It's quite hard to, peti- you know, at least in the hermetic way of thinking, you want to petition the things that are above you but closest to you because it's much easier to get their attention. Okay. So, um, and they're much more con- close because they're closer, the closer beings are to the human arc of evolution, the more they understand humans because they're closer. And so like, you know, you don't want to contact some vast cosmic function that doesn't give a fuck about you because it looks like you look like a, uh, you know, a cell within a cell within a cell on a piece of dust on the back of some dog's asshole, like somewhere on a planet, eight billion light years from here. It's just like, who cares? Right. It's like, well, it cares, but it, but it sees you from that perspective. There's a, I just did a podcast that is, I think it was a podcast. Yeah. So I just did a podcast with a guy I'm going to release in it very shortly. Um, and he said, it's like, he made this, he was quoting a philosopher. I can't forget, remember who he is, but he said something that's very useful from the perspective of working with higher intelligences where he says, this is so cool. He said, it's like, look, if let's say that I look at you from here to here. I see you as a human. Okay. But if I zoom out, if I zoom out above your neighborhood, then I see you as a house. 
And if I zoom out from there, I see you as a country. And if I zoom out from there, I see you as a planet. I'm still looking at you, but my perspective, my point of perspective simply changes. And, and that, that, I mean, that's something useful to think about. And this, so this is why the, you know, in general, Western magic, we work with angels and archangels simply because they're closer to us and they understand us better and they're easier to get a hold of on the phone, <laughs> you know. My only complaint about the archangels is they, you know, they seem a little bit cold compared to uh, sure. the Jesus days where it was like the, the core of my heart was swelling with gratitude. As, as opposed to what? When I was during the Christian period. Sure. Uh, the presence well, absolutely. Of had a very different feeling. Christ is a human. Christ is God incarnate as a human being to take to live as a man and take on all the sufferings of humanity. It's not an angel. I mean, this is the mystery of Christ. He is God and man. Right. And this is, this is what the Christian point is. I mean, it's like that you notice it's like the point is that it's like all debts are paid. Christ has come. The redeemer has come and he has come as a man. He's come to take on the sins of humanity he comes. He is humanity, you know, and, and, uh, that's why, um, even in the Eastern traditions, they often have gurus, right? Who are humans. And you want that, right? You want a human being to relate to because yeah. angels are not humans. Okay. Yeah. Ever since that period, nothing has quite felt the same level of intimacy and completeness. Yeah. And it probably won't for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, you're, you're from a Christian culture. The second is it's fucking Christ. Right. Yeah. Pardon the take the side of it's rather blasphemous. They're, curse in such a manner but you know it's my irish is coming out <laughs> yeah okay so hopefully this is of use in general figure out what you want yeah. and it's only up to you and do not look x outside of yourself whether it's to another tradition another practitioner or even me for guidance you, you need to sit down and figure out what you want because at the moment, you, you appear to be just kind of caught up in a karma burning loop, which may or may not have something to do with uh, uh, the, the broader Buddhist tradition or Bodhisattva Vow. You need to be clear about what you want and make sure it's what you want, not what someone else wants. That's my recommendation. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All right. Hope you really enjoyed that. I will see you next week. In the meantime, make sure to check out magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E for the ever unfolding universal chrysanthemum of psychedelic tools and techniques from the far fringes. I can't wait to see you in class. And in the meantime, be good to the people in your life. And most of all, be good to yourself. All right. See you next time.